Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be having award-winning director and expert in the art of public speaking, Trisha Brooke. The two of them will be discussing her latest film, Right Livelihood, about the Buddhist chaplain at Rikers Island, as well as her new speaker platform, Speakers Who Dare. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney turned life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. And we are here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, inspire you, and give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. All the good stuff. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives, which are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find out more about me, connect with me for coaching uh, through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And I wanted to mention before we dive in today um, that I do have uh, a webinar coming up next week that I wanted to invite you all to join. Um, and it's going to be on my Soul Digger program that I am debuting as a group program um, on April 30th. And so if you want to get a taste of what that program is about and find out what does it mean to be a Soul Digger, uh, maybe you are one too, uh, then you can join me for this webinar on Tuesday, April 23rd at 10 a.m. Pacific. And um, just reach out through my website if you want me to send you the registration link. I haven't even updated my website yet because I just announced this yesterday. So just go ahead and reach out through goldenoversoul.com if you want to be added to the webinar and find out more. Um, So on to our amazing guest for today, uh, Trisha Brooke. She is an award-winning director uh, as well as a writer and choreographer for theater, film, and television. And I'm going to share a little bit about her. Her list of accolades is quite long and she has such a diverse uh, career um, in performance arts and and public speaking. So um, she, in addition to her work in the entertainment industry, she applies her expertise to the art of public speaking. Uh, She's the executive producer of Speakers Who Dare, as well as a former TEDx executive producer for Lincoln Square. Uh, She choreographed Black Box on ABC, The Affair on Showtime, Rescue Me on Fox, and John Turturro's Romance and Cigarettes, where she was awarded a Golden Thumb Award from Roger Ebert. Uh, She curates and hosts the Speaker Salon in New York City. She hosts The Big Talk, uh, an award-winning podcast on iTunes, and she directs and produces The Big Talk Over Dinner, which is a new TV series. Um, She was recently awarded Top Director of 2019 by the International, uh, International Association of Top Professionals. And uh, I'm so excited to talk to her about her documentary, Right Livelihood, A Journey to Hear, uh, all about the Buddhist chaplain at Rikers Island. And this documentary won Best Documentary Short at the Olympus Film Festival. And if you are lucky enough to be in L.A., you can see this documentary screen in June uh, at the Limley Theater in Anoho or North Hollywood. Uh, Find out more about all that Trisha is up to. And if you want to connect with her as we talk on the show, um, if you would like to uh, learn more about public speaking from her, um, go ahead and check out her website, trishabrook.com, and that's T-R-I-C-I-A-B-R-O-U-K, trishabrook.com. Uh, Trisha, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Sunny Joy, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes, we're so excited. And it's it's fun because you are your background is a bit different than most of the guests that we have on the show. So I was really excited to bring someone a bit unique uh, for our normal show lineup. Um, and one of the things that I was really captivated by, um, I love people's stories. And to know that you started out, I believe, in Missouri and ended up in New York City as a performer, um, that says a lot to me about your bravery and your grit and all of the things that I'm sure have contributed to all of these projects that I mentioned in your intro. How did how did that happen that you went from Missouri to New York City? 
I grew up on a farm in Missouri knowing that I would move to New York City to pursue a career in dance. I had a dance teacher who began to bring me to New York as a young girl to study do workshops over the summer. And I just knew that that was what I was meant to do. I knew that I was meant to take stages and to perform in order to take people on a journey to create a place of excitement, a place of storytelling. And for me, it wasn't that I ended up here. For me, it was that I knew I was meant to be here. And it was how I would get myself here and how I would keep myself here. And so I, I'm curious, I want to dig a little bit deeper on that because a lot of people I, I think feel a call to do something or maybe they have a knowing, but it's buried pretty deep perhaps. How did you know? Like if someone's out there listening going, okay, I think that I'm supposed to be doing this, but how did you know? It's such a great question. I knew that when I was on stage, I could transport myself and the audience to another place and we could fall into this place of safety for a brief moment and leave our lives as they were. Mm. And in order to do that, I wanted to be in the place where it was all happening, which is New York City. This is where the modern dance capital was. This is where Broadway is. This is where artists come to pursue a career in performing arts. And I knew that if I didn't succeed, I could find something else to do, but I also knew that I would figure out a way to succeed. And there are many different avenues you can take in order to become a performing artist. I studied ballet. I wanted to be Gelsey Kirkland. I wanted to mm-hmm. dance with Barishnikov. Well, I ended up dancing with Barishnikov, but I wasn't wearing point shoes. I was barefoot. <laughs> so there's all different ways of getting to your destination. And my calling was... I need to be on stages and I need to be on big stages because I want to make a difference in the world as a performer. Mm -hmm. And that is what brought me to New York City. And the ability to not worry about whether or not I was going to fail is what kept me here. Okay. How did you, (laughs) the, the ability to know that you weren't going to fail. Okay. That's pretty strong. How did you have that knowing this? (laughs) Well, falling down and failing are two different things. I fell down a lot, but I knew how to get back up. So the, the getting back up is how you prevent failing. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that I enjoyed reading when I was um, reviewing your website and preparing my outline was this wonderful piece about the effect of yes in your life. And can you tell listeners a little bit about how yes, really, you know, yes, got you to New York. Yes. Got you into some, the, the performing dance, uh, engagements. Yes. Got, it just, it was like this snowball of yeses that led you where you are. I always say yes. And that doesn't mean I say that I don't say no. If I'm saying yes to myself, and no to someone else, I'm still saying yes. So let me just clarify that. When I first began pursuing a career in New York City, I would say yes to all the choreographers who asked me to work with them. Many of them were terrible, and I chose (laughs) to not say yes the next time. But it gave me an opportunity to find out what my level of excellence was. So if I had said no to those people, I wouldn't understand what my level of excellence was. If I hadn't said yes to John Turturro asking me to choreograph a feature film, I wouldn't know that I had a skill set of seeing the world through a filmmaker's eye. And did I know how to choreograph for film? No. Did I say yes to answering his question and then teach myself how to do it really quickly? Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, and see, that's what got me when I was reading that because I was thinking a lot of the things you said yes to, you didn't, I, you had a huge skill set, but you hadn't done perhaps that specific thing yet, direct or choreograph for film. or, And I'm just, I really, that to me says so much because most people, I don't say most people, I don't want to generalize. I might have a tendency to say, oh, I need to know how to do this before I can say yes. So where did that come from that you were able to say yes before you knew (laughs) that you could do it? It goes back to the falling down. I'm not afraid to fall down because all you have to do is get back up. And I don't show up 
to things that I say yes to unprepared. If I say yes to something that I have yet to experience, like choreographing a feature film or writing a full-length musical or pitching a screenplay to a major studio, I will say yes to all of that and then do my homework so that I go in fully prepared and I know what I'm talking about. That's yeah. the difference. Okay. So what would be one of the, when you say, you know, it, it's, it's not failure, it's the getting down and the getting back up. So what was something that maybe would have along the way, like a bump that you hit that might have stopped someone else, but you got back up and now you have this takeaway or this learning from it, like an experience that was pretty transformative. I wanted to be in the Paul Taylor dance company more than anything. I auditioned for The Apprentice dance company and was chosen, which meant I got to spend a lot of time with the actual company members, with Paul. I got to watch rehearsal. I got to be behind the scenes and how dances were made. I got to be on full scholarship and take classes there every day. I was being courted to become a new company member. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, an open call in New York City in the early 90s, and there were hundreds of dancers lined up on city blocks waiting to get into this audition. Huh. And even though I was an apprentice, I did not get special treatment. I had to wait on that line too. Uh -huh. I waited on the line and I auditioned, and we got people got cut and we had callbacks and we had callbacks and days and days and days of auditions. And it was down to three or five of us, I think. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to get it. This is what I've been working my entire life for, to dance with the Paul Taylor Dance Company and to get paid to travel around the world doing what I love. And they didn't call my name. <laughs> I was devastated. I was confused. I thought perhaps I misheard. I was in a, a fog of how could this be? I am the apprentice. The others, <laughs> the others are new people who just walked in here for the first time. <laughs> and I will never forget the feeling that my life was over. Mm. I had no purpose. What am I going to do now? What am I going to do in New York? And my mentor at the time, who was the principal dancer for the Paul Taylor Dance Company, <laughs> he said, you have so many more things to do in the world and with your life. This is just a little hiccup. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this isn't a hiccup. This is devastation. And had that not happened, I would not be here talking to you right now, Sonny. And I cannot tell you, my mission, my legacy is so much bigger than being a dancer in a dance company. And although that's incredible, I was meant to be here today. And had I not fallen really, really hard on that day and known that all I got to do is get up, I wouldn't be here today with you. Mm, I love that. And as you were talking, it reminds me, so a friend that we have in common is Chris Win Winfield, who um, he, uh, for regular listeners, when I attended a uh, media, I guess, workshop in New York um, back in October, this was the gentleman who leads that. And so uh, one of the quotes, I it's been a favorite quote of mine, and Chris used it uh, one of the first times I heard him speak. So I really loved that he picked a quote that's been a favorite of mine forever. And it was playing in my head as you're telling the story. And uh, it's a quote from Steve Jobs. And it says, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and it has made all the difference in my life. And I think just you telling that story, it, it sounds like it was difficult to connect the dots then, but now that you look back, these were the dots that, that had to connect to lead you here. Absolutely. And those sort of experiences give you compassion and empathy in your work moving forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, Trisha, and I hate to put you on the spot with this one, but, um, you know, when you think about when you said the legacy that you're going to leave and what you were really meant to do, um, do you believe that we have a destiny or the what Steve Jobs was talking, you know, the karma, the destiny, the those things, or is it are you creating this yourself? I think if you tune in and really dig deep, we all have a legacy and uh, a destiny that we're supposed to create and leave leave behind on, on the planet. Mm-hmm. I feel very lucky that mine revealed itself to me in such a profound way. I always say I want to make the world a better place, and I did that by performing. I made the world a better place for that brief time while I was on stage dancing for those hundred or thousand of people in the audience. But when it was over, it was over. So now I have this opportunity to create a legacy of putting people who have important messages onto the big screen or the big stage. And that kind of ripple effect is far, has a far greater reach than the hour and a half that I'm dancing on stage. So that is why the legacy is so intense and important for me now is that it's, it's longer lasting. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. I've never even thought about it that way. Um, and, and that also leads me to my next question, which is, okay, so you were in the performing arts for many years. Now you have also been an executive producer for TEDx Lincoln Square in New York, and you now have a, a new speaker platform that I'd love to hear more about, Speakers Who Dare. So I'm curious, how did those dots connect? What led to the TEDx and the, the putting the people on the big stages with some of the coaching work you do? When I began to work with speakers, I had all this, all these incredible people who had these amazing ideas to share, and I didn't have any place to put them. So the next organic step for me was to put on a show And of course, I am not afraid to fail, so I went straight for TEDx. (laughs) And I decided I'm going to go for TED. I'm going to be a TEDx organizer and put them on that stage. And Uh that's what I did. It was a long, arduous, incredible application process. I was a very uh, proud TEDx organizer for two years. I loved the brand. I loved being a TEDx organizer. My co-producer, Jamie Broderick, and I had an incredible time with TEDx Lincoln Square. And then I decided it was time to have my own creative vision and moved on from TED and created Speakers Who Dare. I wanted to be able to create the kind of event that had more flexibility. And I wanted to put speakers on my stage who were saying what we are thinking. Mm, Okay. So what do you mean by that? Potentially edgier, potentially more controversial, Mm. potentially thought provoking. I wanted to be able to push the boundaries in terms of what the ideas were that I was, that I was putting on my stages. Okay. Yeah. And that's interesting because, um, a couple of the guests on my radio show who have done TEDx talks have had theirs removed because they have been accused of things like pseudoscience. Rupert Sheldrake would be an example, the first one that comes to mind, but there've been a couple of those. And of course I adore their work and these are very well-respected scientists, but uh, their ideas were a little bit too edgy for TEDx. And it's so, although it's funny now, I think Rupert's talk has had so many more millions of hits since it got banned because people, you know, put it on YouTube or something like that. And and now it's getting more attention than TEDx ever probably intended it to. I think I, I think that's great that there's an outlet for something that is a little bit edgier. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some of the topics that that now you're seeing from speakers who dare that perhaps wouldn't have been uh, as acceptable at TEDx? I'm not sure if it's the topics. It's mm-hmm. the way I allow the speakers to talk about it and incorporate mm. theatricality, dance, music, sound effects, that sort of thing. I really, I highly produce my show and I get very involved in my speakers' expression of their idea with their permission, of course. And so being able to have full creative control of the idea of what it means to be a speakers who a speaker who dares is important to me and also the platform is about creating community 
I want my audience to walk away knowing that if they say something, if they if they speak their truth, if they speak out about something they believe in or that is important to them, that makes them a speaker who dares, even if they're not on a stage. Okay. And yeah, that's, and tell me a little bit more when you say there, that there's theatricality involved, like you said dance, music, or, or... Absolutely. I have a speaker, Amy O'Neill, who talks about resiliency. She was in the Boston Marathon bombing. and is a survivor and talks about resiliency. And I asked her if she would feel comfortable with me having sound effects. And those sound effects include an explosion. They include being underwater. Mm. And they include uh, applause as if someone's crossing a finish line. And we talked about it at length in order to be sensitive to the survivors. We talked about it at length in order to be able to fulfill my creative vision and to help elevate her talk to a new level. And we accomplished a really beautiful and impactful piece of theatrical academia. Oh, that's, I just, what a, that is, such an experience, I would think, for the audience as well as the speaker. I, I, I'm. So, did you have your inaugural event in March? It was March 26th. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, when, uh, so if folks want to to learn more and be able to connect for a future one, how do they do that? They can go to speakerswhodare.com and sign up. And when when the applications open again in September, they'll be notified. The next okay. event will be in March. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And and in New York again. It's in New York City, yeah. Yes, where everything happens. (laughs) That's what I've learned. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm curious then, as you have now coached many, many people on getting onto TEDx stages or Speakers Who Dare or various platforms, um, as you have perfected the art of public speaking, um, what, what do you, what advice do you have, or let's, let's talk about public speaking a bit. What advice do you have for folks out there? Because I've always heard that the fear of public speaking is equivalent, if not stronger, to the fear of death <laughs> than the fear of death. So what, what do you, how do you help people get over that? Yes. Jerry Seinfeld says that more people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> okay, that's really well said, Jerry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The fear of public speaking is real and it can paralyze you. What I advise people to think about is how important the message is. And I'll give you an example. One of my speakers from the speaker salon, James Lucas, he is a vegan and he is an advocate for animals and he is desperate to get the message out there about why being vegan is important, why using, uh, clothing products that are not made from animals is important and why paying attention to animals being used in the entertainment industry is important. These are very, very dear to his heart uh, values. And he is terrified of public speaking to the point where when he gives a talk, he looks like he is going to cry and pass out and throw up all at once. Oh, my goodness. And so he's been working with me on this. And what we determined was when he puts the message first and when he puts himself in a position of knowing he must be the voice of the animals, then the fear subsides. He has to make it about the voice, the message, and the animals. And as soon as he takes it off of himself, he relaxes and he shares the information in a way we can hear it. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, okay, so let's, why don't we take our break? Um, and when we come back, I want to keep talking about more because the art of public speaking, it is an art. <laughs> and I want to know more, uh, not only about getting over nerves, but also what else is involved in really creating a powerful and captivating message for an audience. Um, so uh, you have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am joined today by award-winning director, writer, choreographer, 
expert in public speaking, uh, Trisha Brooke. Uh, you can find out more by going to trishabrook.com, and her last name is spelled B-R-O-U-K, so trishabrook.com. Um, and we will be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available today on Amazon.com. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Time is funny. Sometimes it seems fast, another time slow. When it comes to time slots remaining on Alternative Talk 1150, time is running out. In fact, there are just a few primetime slots available. So if you want to host your own radio program, the time to call 425-653-1150 is right now. Nope, no time for excuses. Dial 425-653-1150 to find out how affordable it can be to host a radio show. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. An alternative to everything else on your radio dial. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy. I am joined today by Trisha Brooke, award-winning director, writer, choreographer, uh, executive producer of Speakers Who Dare. Um, so many, so many fun outlets where you can find her work. Um, so uh, before, real, real quickly, Trisha, before we drive back in, we did have a caller. Tim, if you want to talk, if you have a question for Trisha, we would love to take it. I'm sorry, I don't know if we, we dropped you or you dropped us, but if you want to call back, we would love to take your question. And anyone else out there, if you got a question for Trisha around public speaking or any of the things we're talking about, um, 888-298-5569. It's 888-298-5569. So Trisha, you know, we were talking a bit about how the, of course, the big fear of public speaking, but once you get past those nerves um, or learn how to channel them in a different way, so tell us some other things like how you write that everyone has a story to tell, but how do you identify the story and, and put it together in a way that's really captivating and powerful for an audience? First, you have to start by asking lots of questions. And this is what I do with all of my speakers. I have what I call an active listening session. And what happens is they start off with the canned answers that they've been using in all of their social media and all of their interviews. And then all of a sudden it changes Mm. and that breaks, that falls away and I break through. And then they start to reveal things to me that are even more captivating and more interesting and will propel the story and the important message forward even further. An example of that is Kristen Smedley, one of my very first speakers. She came to me and said, I want to talk about rare eye disease 
two of my three children were born blind and I started a foundation and I want to raise more awareness and teach people about this and, and uh, you know, inspire people who are, are struggling with this disease and help families, et cetera, et cetera. So we spent time together. I asked her tons of questions. And at the end of the session, I said, Kristen, this is not about rare eye disease. This is about how you learn to see the world differently through the eyes of your children. Oh, Wow. But I, Trisha, that seems like a very unique skill that you have to be able to listen so deeply and then bring forth that kind of a message. Perhaps, but I think we can all teach ourselves to become an active listener. And it's all about paying attention to what's in between the words. And that's something that I just heard from one of my speakers. She said when she's in the writing process, she pays attention to what's in between the words she's writing as she's creating a talk. And I think that perhaps it is a unique skill set, but one that can be taught and one that you can teach yourself. Part of what I offer is a guided online practice, The Art of the Big Talk, where I ask you questions with audio prompts and you answer those questions and there's no right or wrong. And then by the end of this process, you have over a hundred ideas. So it's really about getting out of your own way, allowing someone to ask you a question or asking yourself the question, what do I like? What do I, what am I good at? What am I bad at? What, what don't I like? What light, lit, lights me up? Why do I get up in the morning? And then all of a sudden you start to go down a path of, oh, I have more to talk about than just my business or my book or my foundation. I have something much deeper and profound that I could actually share with the world that might help one person. And that's why people take big stages. Mm. And and it seems like, you know, we're talking about public speaking, but even if someone out here listening today is thinking, I, I don't have any plans to be on a TEDx stage, but still, it seems like honing these skills and getting confident enough to, uh, to do public speaking translates into other areas of, of our lives. Like for example, being confident enough to ask for a raise or, you know, we were talking about at the beginning of the show, saying yes to things that maybe are a little unknown to us. Um, so have you seen that happen for folks? Communication is not limited to big stages or to public speaking for sure. And the art of speaking can translate into all facets of your life. For example, I teach the technique of objective and action to my speakers and to my actors. But as human beings, we are using the technique of objective and action unknowingly every single day. And here's an example. If you want your kids to go to bed, that is your objective. How do you get them to do that with an action? Mm. Bribe, story tell, <laughs> feed. <laughs> if you want your spouse or your partner to take out the garbage, that is your objective. How do you get them to do it? You could nag them. You could seduce them. You could pay them. <laughs> this is the art of objective and action. And that is something we incorporate in our lives every single day. Oh, that's such a good way of putting it. Um, and yeah, so there was another thing that I noticed on your website that I wanted to ask you about as well in terms of public speaking. And you write, accept the gift from your audience, then give them yours. What do you mean by that? When you walk out onto a stage, I direct my speakers to take that moment, accepting the gift of the time and the attention of that audience. Mm. And once they, you accept that gift, then it's time to give your gift to them. So there is an immediate exchange between the two of you. Oh, that's beautiful. And when you think, I mean, because it seems like our time and attention is the most valuable thing that we really have to offer. Um, and so that is a gift that you have been given to step out on the stage. I mean, I, does that help with nerves as well? Because when I think about it as a gift... That makes it, I don't know, that softens it somehow for me. I think it helps with nerves and it also helps ground you so that you can drop in and really connect the second you walk out onto the stage. So would that be something when you, uh, either as the organizer, uh, producer for TEDx Lincoln Square or Speakers Who Dare, or of course being familiar with many um, uh, speaking engagements, 
when you are selecting these folks, is that something that you really look for is someone who's dropped in grounded and connected or what, you know, how, how did you select from all of the thousands of people that, that are wanting to be a part of those events? The process of application selection is really, really interesting. I've seen a lot of applications and I always lead with the idea. If the idea is interesting to me or unique, super fresh, then I will move into the video process. But what's really fascinating to me is that 95% of all applications are pitching me their business and they don't know it. They don't really know the difference between pitching me an idea and pitching me their business. And those who pitch me their business go in the no pile. And those who answer the question, why are you a speaker who dares by cutting and pasting their bio tells me two things. They're lazy <laughs> Sorry. and they don't understand my vision of this speaker event. So I, I whittle through uh, speaker applications very quickly because I, I get clues from them. Yeah. Yeah. And the, so the pitfalls that you, if someone out there is thinking, I want to uh, apply for a big stage, then some of the things to, okay, you don't want to be lazy in your application. What else should people be aware of? (laughs) You want to be aware that you want to serve the audience. Your application is all about sharing this idea in order to give the audience something really special. It's not about you. It's not about your credentials. It's not about all the places you've spoken. It's about, this is the idea I want to share because I know it will make a difference for your audience. And when you get past that phase and you begin to move into the video phase or the in-person audition, it's really important that you rehearse, that you understand how to communicate and deliver that talk in an authentic way, and that you're not putting on a persona of who you think the audience wants you to be or who you think the organizer wants you to be. Because what that does, it, it creates a disconnect between us. So I don't know why I don't trust you, but I just don't. And that is because you're trying to be someone else on stage instead of yourself. When you are authentically yourself, it gives me an opportunity to decide I like what you're talking about or I don't. There's not that in-between of I'm confused. Confused is never good. Yeah. Yeah. And and then that makes me think, okay, if you're going to be really authentic in who you are, do you – I've always wondered this. Um, do, do speakers who we see, let's say Speakers Who Dare or TEDx or wherever, do they have – does everyone have it memorized word for word or is there any uh, free form in there at all or is it just like super polished down to each comma and word? It depends on the speaker, but I teach memorization so okay. that you have the freedom to be to go off book in the moment. And that comes from the theater and the acting background. I do not think free form is ever good because you could go off on a tangent and never come back. Right. I think many speakers do well with bullets. Many speakers do well with memorization. But I really teach the practice of memorization to the point where you are past the point of knowing it so, so, so well. So when the audience applauds or sighs or or becomes super, super silent, you can in the moment riff on that. Mm-hmm. That's why memorization and the rehearsal process is so important. And I talk about all the time, dancers do a million plies. <laughs> you do not want to see us take off or land. You just want to see us in the air. And that's the same thing for speaking. You must rehearse. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and so I want to make sure that folks out there, um, obviously, Tricia is an expert in this field and um, has helped probably thousands of people at this point get on speaking stages. Um, so on your website, trishabrook.com, folks can find, uh, you mentioned the art of the big talk, I believe, uh, is a masterclass you offer on your website. Yes. It's, it's the process I take speakers through on birthing a talk. Okay. And so that would be a good, uh, dipping in point if they want to, connect uh, with your work and and hone their own public speaking? Well, the best way to, to start off would be to download a free PDF, which is the seven-step formula for fearless speaking. Okay. And, and that is 
by texting my name, T-R-I-C-I-A, to 44222, and that's a free PDF. Okay, so for those out there listening, text Trisha, T-R-I-C-I-A, to the number 44222, and she'll get you that seven-step formula for fearless speaking. Um, yeah, and so any, I, I want to... I want to turn to Big Talk Productions, but uh, before we do that, you know, Tricia, is there anything else around um, public speaking that we didn't touch on that you think might help listeners out there? I think it's important for listeners to know that we as organizers want you to reach out to us. We want you to engage with us on social media. We want you to tell us what you're thinking and share those important ideas with us. We are not behind the curtain like the great Oz. We are (laughs) human human beings who want to connect with you so that we can put you on our stages. So reach out to us. I love that. And then, then that makes me want to ask one last question before we turn away. But what what are some of your most memorable, either they were uh, things that were really great or things that went terribly wrong, but some of your most memorable experiences from putting people on the stage, Speakers Who Dare, TEDx, whatever? I always love watching the speakers walk onto the stage one way and walk off another. But one of my most favorite memories is Rabbi Elhanan Popko. He started courting me a year before the TEDx Lincoln Square (laughs) applications were available. He reached out to me via email and he said, I really want to be on your stage and I just got married. So I want to talk about my wife. And I said, that is the cutest thing I've ever heard, but that is not an idea worth spreading. (laughs) So come back to me when you come up with an idea. Okay. And he did. And it still wasn't really as, as interesting as I thought it could be. And he came back again. But during this entire process, he was commenting on social and he was supporting my work and he was being very engaged and truly authentic. Mm. And when the application process opened, I said, I want you to apply with something that only you could talk about. I want you to talk about politics. Mm. Okay. Now that's not something you hear very often from the stage. I mean, I think in these kinds of events, I thought politics were kind of no-nos. It is, which is why (laughs) I challenged him with that. (laughs) And I knew that he could talk about political polarization in a way that no one else could. And he nailed it. It's one of my favorite talks and it's on YouTube. Okay. And will you say his name one more time? Absolutely. It's Rabbi Elhanan Popko. Hope Co. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Now I want to know another one. Can you share one more before we turn to big talk? Because these are really interesting. Sarah Montana applied to TEDx Lincoln Square in 2018. And it was a, a written application about forgiveness. She wrote in that her mother and brother were murdered on Christmas Eve. And she wanted to talk about forgiveness. And I thought, there is no way I'm putting this girl on my stage. Everyone will feel sorry for her. Everyone will feel sorry for themselves. And I challenged myself in that moment to give her the opportunity to prove me wrong. Mm. I challenged myself to give her a video audition. And it was one of the best video auditions I've ever seen. She sat in front of her computer, no fancy diva light. It was just the light from the screen blue light on her sweet face and Mm. she told the story about her experience and why forgiveness is so important and the fact that no one teaches you how to do it and it blew my mind Mm. and she took my stage okay and what uh, and her name again one more time Sarah Montana Sarah Montana the power of forgiveness on YouTube Okay. And you can find all the speakers uh, if you Google TEDx Lincoln Square on the YouTube channel. Okay. Yeah. And it just, you know, as we wrap this up, as you're talking about these individuals, specifically Rabbi Popko, but that you, this is a theme that has been, I think, woven throughout the show today is really making those asks, even when it's uncomfortable, even if you don't have the the experience in that area before, making the asks, saying yes to these things, and that that persistence really pays off, um, that engagement really pays off, even if you think it's a long shot or pie in the sky. Absolutely. And I'm somebody who takes very seriously an underdog who reaches out. Mm, yeah, I love that. Okay, so for everybody out there listening, if you're feeling that call, maybe this show is for you, uh, that you needed to hear this. So reach out to either Trisha or wherever it is that you have been feeling called to uh, share your story and your work. 
Um, okay, so Trisha, I want to talk to uh, turn to Big Talk Productions. Okay, so this is your production company. You do documentary shorts on thought leaders who are making an impact on our world. Um, tell us a little bit about why you formed that company and uh, what what all you do. I was. Uh, connected with Chris Schember. He reached out to me on LinkedIn and he started talking to me about what he does. He sells empathy while making pasta. And I thought, what? what? Exactly. That was my exact response. What are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I host these dinners where I make pasta and, uh, and we, we voice, we give voice to each other and it creates empathy. And I said, I'm coming to a dinner. When is the next one? Yeah. And I went to this dinner and it's at a studio apartment and he pushes all the furniture to the periphery, sets up tables and serves pasta in paper bowls. And I thought, what is happening? <laughs> and I, I had to step back and put on my director cap and watch this because I'm watching these people, these these leaders and, and entrepreneurs just adoring, communicating with one another, not talking shop, but just being humans. And after that experience, I said, Chris, nobody knows what this is. And nobody knows. <laughs> it's called the 747 Club. Nobody knows why it's called the 747 Club except me. You put pasta in at 747 because you want it to be al dente at 8 o'clock. I need to make a movie about you. I want you to let me produce it. And he said, yes. That was when the Big Talk Productions was formed, and I made a movie about him. It won all these awards, and then I decided I wanted to keep doing this because I have an opportunity to have a wider reach and to make the world a better place by creating these films. Yeah, and it also, again, thinking about that, that uh, someone who is just doing what brings them joy um, and connecting people uh, in service of empathy. Like he wasn't going out trying to, it just sounds like he was doing his thing. And when you are really authentically doing your thing, that's when the dots start to connect. I, I mean, tell me, do you, does that, uh, has that been your experience, Trisha? Because I think some people go out and they try to be all slick and market and this and that. And it's like, then you've got individuals like that who are doing something incredibly unique, creative, and really uh, connecting people in a neat way. I, that's when I feel like those things need to be shared with the world. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can't draw your own dots. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's such a good point. <laughs> so, okay. So the latest project for Big Talk Productions has been Right Livelihood, a journey to hear about the Buddhist chaplain at Rikers Island. Um, and I want to acknowledge that it just won Best Documentary Short at the Olympus Film Festival. And again, for those folks in or around LA, it will screen in June. If you are lucky enough to be in the area, you can go check that out at the Limley Theater uh, in NoHo. Um, so t where did this idea come from? And tell us about the film. I was having brunch by myself uh, on a Sunday, reading Lion's Roar, which is a magazine I subscribe to. I'm a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And in the magazine, they interviewed Justin about his work on Rikers Island. And I just knew in that very moment, I was going to find him and I was going to make a movie about him. <laughs> so I went on to LinkedIn and he had a profile and I, I messaged him and I said, this is um, an interesting ask, but I would like to know if you'd have coffee with me because I'm a filmmaker and I think you would be a perfect subject for a documentary. Mm. And he, he met me for coffee and we talked about life and his kids and his family and his work. And by the end of coffee, he said, yes, let me give you the number to the person over at Rikers so you can start that process, which is going to be a little complicated. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I, that has to be just, I can't even imagine how many layers of bureaucracy or, or red tape that you would have to get through to get access there. Can you speak a little bit about how that went? Well, Mitch Abrams, who is the PR guy at Rikers, is a dream to work with. So it wasn't as hard as I thought. It really wasn't. And they're super communicative and really supportive of Justin's work. So they made all of that possible for me. And I spent time with Justin and his family ahead of time. This is how I work with all of my subjects. I spend time with them, get to know them before I bring the cameras in. And I knew that I wanted to tell Justin's story in a way that he felt good about as well. So we talked at length about how I saw this story being told, how I wanted to tell the story. And I also made him 
very comfortable in knowing that I would give him an opportunity to see the film before it got released. Mm. And that was very important to me. So how long did you spend uh, uh, creating, writing, or uh, uh, um, I guess directing, production, all of the above? How long did that take? We spent probably um, 10 months on the project from conception mm -hmm. and the editing process took quite a while because actually what took quite a while was the first day we were scheduled to be on Rikers. There was a car accident on the bridge between New York and the actual Rikers Island. Uh -huh. So we couldn't get on. And then the next time we were scheduled to shoot in Rikers, there was an attack. <gasps> and the next time we finally got onto the island and were able to shoot. So that was the longest process is the waiting, waiting to get in to shoot on Rikers Island. Right. And so tell us, I, I didn't even, I, it makes sense that they would have chaplains at, at the prison, but, um, the fact that he's a Buddhist seems, is that unique in the prison system? Are most chaplains of a different faith or? Yes, it's very unique. And he was brought in by the female warden who has since retired, but there was a female warden there before we began to shoot. And he he came in to do chaplaincy work and he came from hospice. So he was uh, the perfect fit to come in and sort of provide spiritual care and guidance. Mm -hmm. But he then began to offer meditation to the corrections officers, which was welcomed with open arms by Deputy Warden Miller, who is there now. And he actually says, when the corrections officers meditate, they just, it gives them a second, a, a second longer before they react to what's happening. And a prison is very, very chaotic. While we were there, a lot of stuff was going on. So when those COs go in and have an opportunity to just sit with Justin quietly and to meditate, it sets them up to be more thoughtful and more, more connected to themselves and reactions that they have for the rest of the day. And right livelihood in the Buddhist tradition means you are making a living while also making the world a better place. And that is why Justin is living in right livelihood. Oh, I just, I can't wait to see this. And so you had mentioned that, um, is, so if you're not in LA and able to see it when it screens in June, then the, the hopefully the next step will be uh, distribution through Netflix or similar? Some, some sort of streaming platform. We are hoping that the production and the theatrical distribution in Los Angeles will bring the right people to the table so that we can have a wider cast a wider net with this beautiful film. Oh yeah. I just, the vision of, uh, and I'm sure there's some shots of this with the, the corrections officers meditating with him. I just, that is not a, that is not an image that had ever occurred to me until you mentioned it here today. I did not think of corrections officers meditating <laughs> in our prison system. <laughs> so uh, we will look forward to the release of that and, and huge congrats on, uh, on the Olympus uh, Film Festival Award and um, where this film is going to go. Thank you so much, Sunny. Yeah, so we have just about a minute left. Um, so if you have been listening today, I have been joined by Trisha Brooke, B-R-O-U-K. TrishaBrook.com is the website to go to, or if you want to apply to be a speaker who dares or attend one of the events in uh, uh, the coming year, um, go to speakerswhodare.com. Uh, you know, Trisha, we've got less than a minute left. I just would love to uh, give you the floor for any final message for our listeners. We've covered a lot of different ground today, so wherever you want to go. <laughs> I would just like to encourage everyone listening to really think about what mark they want to leave in the world and to go for it. Falling down is part of life and all you have to do is get back up and fear of failure and fear of public speaking, that just prevents you from sharing your very, very important message with the world and trust and know that your story is meant to be heard and you can change a life by sharing it. I love that. Thank you, Trisha, for so much wisdom and inspiration. And hey, everybody out there, now go do the big ask and say yes. You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. We'll see you next week. <laughs>